All right, good morning. It's week six of The Art of Neighboring. We've got a lot to do this morning. Uh, we are going to start by hearing a report on some of the things going on in our community from one of our own who works at DHS. We're going to spend a little bit of time in John chapter 1, giving some more thought to what does it mean that the Word became flesh, that Jesus dwelt among us. And then we're going to finish by hearing from a couple families who are trying to just be present in the lives of some children who are engaged with DHS, engaged in the adoptive process. And so we're going to hear a little bit about where they're at, and then we're going to pray for them uh, as we conclude our service this morning. Uh, what we've tried to do each of these six weeks is make ourselves as a body more aware of some of the needs in our community as we think about the art of neighboring, as we think about building bridges into the community for the gospel to cross over. Part of it is just becoming more tuned to what are the needs of our community. We all have different touch points in Douglas County, groups of people we're aware of, groups of people and needs and challenges and uh, trials that come into contact with our lives, hopefully by taking a step back and hearing from some different folks in our church who are involved in these different spheres. It increases our awareness of the need, but also causes us to become more contemplative, asking the Lord, Lord, how would you use me? My place of work and my family, my neighborhood, maybe some of the things uh, that we're going to hear today or that we've heard the last six weeks. So I want to invite Alan Shogren up to the stage. He's going to share a little bit about what's going on at DHS, some of the needs that he's aware of, some of the good things happening, and then a little bit about how we can be a part. This is Alan. Alan, this I'm, is the church. I'm Alan. Uh, uh, Alan, tell us a little bit about uh, what you see as a DHS worker, what you see in our county, the need that exists here. Well, um, the need is great. Uh, Pastor Nathan asked me probably at least a month ago to, to think about this and talk about it, and um, I reached out to one of the branches of DHS. There's actually three branches. There's self-sufficiency, where I work, and there is aging and people with disabilities, and there's child welfare. When people think of DHS, most people think of child welfare. Those are the, the people that go out and take children away, and that does happen sometimes. Um, as a negative thought some people have. Um, and then they think of self-sufficiency of those people that just give out all the money, um, which is kind of what we do in a way. Uh, so I just want to bring to you guys um, a few facts and a few uh, thoughts about what, how I, I feel what DHS does, and not just from a person that works there, uh, but from a, a person that has um, done a lot of things in my life. And, uh, I have a long history with DHS, going back to when I was a parole and probation officer. So um, I've worked with DHS a lot in the community. And we have other people here that work for DHS as well in, in our midst. So um, the first thing I want to start out with, though, is Pastor Nathan said, what good is DHS doing? That was one of the questions he asked me. And uh, I could probably talk for about two hours, but I'm gonna, I made notes so I wouldn't ramble too much. Uh, last year, DHS, DHS served over 1.2 million people in Oregon. That's a lot of folks. And that's between those three services. And actually, um, voc rehab is also thrown in the mix there, too. So there's actually four. Um, Self-sufficiency, where I work, that's uh, people think of food stamps, SNAP, that's what they call it now, TANF, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, ERDC, Employment-Related Daycare. Um, and uh, one of the most important things we do 
one of the most gut-wrenching things that I do is deal with what's called TADVS. That's Temporary Assistance for Domestic Violence Survivors. So even knowing what DHS was years ago, I had no idea what, what depth DHS did working with domestic violence until I started working there. Um, I keep looking at Joyce because Joyce and I work together, and she deals with that every day, unfortunately. So, um, and then there's aging and people with disabilities and child welfare. I wanted to kind of actually concentrate more on child welfare today because that's kind of what we're, we're looking at, more of the adoptive process. So I reached out to a few of my friends on the child welfare side, and the response was overwhelming and quick. Uh, I had messages coming back from the overall program manager of all child welfare within minutes. It went that fast. They were elated, excited, um, just beside themselves that a church would think about helping. And it was like goosebumps for me. So, um, and this was, this was this last week when I was in Minnesota uh, vacationing. So if I have a little accent, I, I apologize. Don't you know? Um, you betcha. Uh, so the need that came back immediately was uh, they have 600 kids right now in foster care in Douglas County. About 7,000 statewide. 600. There's about 280 foster care homes, so do the math there. Uh, there's a huge need for foster care. Uh, they are, they're, they're just, they're overwhelmed. That's what I'm getting back from everybody I know in child welfare. I talk to them every day because as a manager, I'm always going around talking to people, and I see child welfare people all day long, and I ask other managers, how you doing? And they're just, they just, sometimes they can't even talk. But they're that swamped. Um, and we could go into the, the reason and the, the causation, and I think a lot of you guys know what causes a lot of that. But the fact is, is that the child welfare foster care program is literally just over their heads. Um, they need more foster care parents, period. Um, one of the messages that came back is just, period, Douglas County is struggling for foster care parents. Um, so if you have the inkling to get involved in that somehow, or if you know somebody that is, uh, find out how you can support them. Uh, pray for them. Uh, pray for your local DHS workers. Uh, you know, there are some other, uh, several believers that work in the building, and uh, that, that's encouraging. So um, just a little statistic, uh, part of the causation, part of the why we have so many foster care children. Uh, 40% of... Um, inmates in Oregon State Prison were foster children. It gets worse. 60% of those have at least one child in foster care currently. You can kind of see what's happening here. That's part of the problem. That's one small causation to why we have so many foster children. We have so many people incarcerated and their kids have to be taken away. Um, so, how can you get involved? There are several aspects. I obviously mentioned foster families, mentors, and, and volunteers. So one of the things that DHS does, child welfare side of the, the, the house does, they, people bring their kids in and they have to go to a meeting or they have to do the switch off, and sometimes there's literally no one to watch the kid and they're scrambling and they have to find people to go watch the kids. And one of the, um, one of the ladies that I've known for 
years and years. We actually used to be probation officers together in a former life. Um, she said they could really use volunteers, just people to come in and sit with children, just just to be there for them. Uh, as you know, if you have kids and grandkids, um, kids are very resilient. A lot of times they just, what we see as being, you know, tragic and dysfunctional, it's just life to them, just whatever. But having a stable person to come in and just sit with them and talk with them and, you know, be that grandma, grandpa type would, would be huge. Um, so the need is that, foster families, uh, mentors, and volunteers. So I have a list of names and numbers and emails. If anyone at all ever wants to get involved in this, you can let me know. You can let the church know. They'll let me know. And like I said, from the program manager over all DHS or over all child welfare here, she responded in minutes of me asking, reaching out. And I didn't reach out to her. I reached out to one of her underlings, and they immediately went to her, and she shot back messages. It was even five minutes, and I had pages full of messages from child welfare. They were literally so excited that a church wants to get involved. They were just, they couldn't say enough. So um, one last thing. James 1.27 says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being polluted by the world. So I hope in a small way that's what we're doing at DHS. Uh, I hope that you have a maybe um, a better outlook on DHS if you maybe had a negative one. Uh, it's not just a bureaucracy. Uh, it, it's a calling. Social service is an absolute calling. That's where I'm supposed to be. And uh, I love it. It's gut-wrenching uh, at times. Um, but at times it's, it's amazing. We see some really cool victories too. Alan, point out who else works at DHS here. I know Joyce for sure. Joyce. And Brandy, right? Yeah. Can we have Brandy and Joyce come up and let's pray for you guys before we go through the rest of the service? They were prepped for this, sorry, so they're, sorry, they're ready. Um, sorry, Joyce. Sorry, Brandy. Alan said you guys wouldn't mind before the service, for this, just, just so I'm, we're clear. So we'll pray for them now. We'll continue on with our service. But if after the service, you could catch one of these three. If you have a question, these are the faces that you go to. If you want to pray for someone, these are the faces uh, that you go to. If you're curious, if there's any way that you could be a part of something, in, in huge ways, small ways, these are the faces that you go to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for those here who are involved with DHS, who are involved trying to be present in the lives of people in our community who have unique challenges, Lord, and to be uh, a crutch if that's needed, a wheelchair if that's needed, or just a hand to hold if that's needed. Lord, show us how as a church we can be a part of what you're doing in and through the work of even those who are on the stage right now. Lord, show us how to be a part of things going on in our community, Lord, where we're actually seeing the Christian community through the B1 UMQA group come together and be a part of caring for DHS with gift packs uh, for families and all sorts of ways, Lord, that the Christian community is stepping into this need. Lord, would you put it on our hearts individually? Would you put it on our hearts together to play a part in some way? Lord, thank you for what we see happening, Lord, that you have put your people in strategic places of influence in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 14 through 18. We're going to talk about briefly 
Jesus, the Word made flesh, Jesus taking on flesh, coming and dwelling among us, and what that means for us with this theme this morning of being present, being present to the Lord, being present moment by moment, available to what He's calling us to do to Him and to our neighbors. In preparing for this morning, I came across an article that USA Today ran a couple of years ago, and it's about the Hess family, and the Hess family has a bunch of adopted kids, I want to say maybe 11 or so, and then three biological children, and reading about them is interesting because there's really nothing spectacular or striking about their family. It started for them a handful of years ago where a person that they knew was going to have a child and couldn't take care of the child, and so somehow they were made aware of this need, and they, they just said yes. It wasn't a part of a 10-year plan. They just said yes. And wouldn't you know that they privately adopted that child. About a year later, they started to get involved with, with their DHS. It's in Maryland. But they started to get involved with foster care as the concern and compassion for this group of people is starting to grow. And, and you just know when you say yes to one thing, seems like there's another ask coming just around the corner. Uh, they adopted this little child. They got involved with DHS shortly after set of twins was born and they were asked, would you consider taking these twins? This was not a part of their plan, but they said yes. A little while goes by and they discover that these twins have five older siblings currently being cared for by grandpa and grandma. You know how the story goes. Grandpa and grandma are no longer able to take care of five siblings. So DHS steps in and says to Hesses, would you consider taking one or any of these kids? They just said yes. It took all five. And so for them, it was a meaningful thing that they could do to try to keep siblings together. And that led to the discovery of more siblings. And again, they just said yes. So 11 adopted children later, plus three biological children uh, of their own. And they, they reflect on what a normal week looks like in their house. And they just there's nothing normal about it. There's no rhythm. There's no routine. It's, it's chaos but it's good. And they wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, it's not easy. It's costly. It changes everything. I think they drive one of those crazy vans, you know, the, the really big ones that are commercial grade, pack everybody in. They just said yes. And so sometimes being available, sometimes being present is just about us saying yes, not believing that we are the right person necessarily for the job, not necessarily believing that we're so gifted and so strategically positioned to do this. Sometimes not having a clue what God's doing. Sometimes not having a clue why maybe he's tapped us on the shoulder. But just saying yes. And so we want to see today from John 1. The Father sends the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally existing Son in the flesh to be present with us, to be present with our need, to not run from our need, to not just condemn us to suffer for our need, but to be present and to bring healing and hope for our need. John chapter 1, let's read verses 14 through 18 together. Verse 14 says, In the Word, we're talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, or ranks higher than me, because he was before me. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus, the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally existing Son, takes on flesh and comes to save us. Track 14 or 1500 years or so uh, to Moses. A collection was taken in Exodus 25 of the people's valuables, their belongings, for the purpose of building a tabernacle, right? This was a, a place where the presence of God was going to reside in their midst. And as they traveled and as they camped, the tabernacle was to be erected in the center of camp to remind them of the supremacy and the centrality of the Lord in their midst. Their whole lives were wrapped around Yahweh. Their whole lives were wrapped around the Lord. It was His protective and sheltering presence in their midst, a locality where His presence resided. In so many ways, uh, the tabernacle brought them close. Uh, you, some of you are familiar with the different things inside the tabernacle. One of those items is the ark or the the altar for the burnt offerings. And the altar for the burnt offerings is really significant because it reminded the people that they couldn't approach God without some sort of payment, without some sort of substitute payment. That's how broken, that's how wicked, that's how holy he was and how wicked they were. It constantly reminded them of their brokenness and his holiness. And so in some ways, the tabernacle brought God near to them. In some ways, the tabernacle brought them near to to God, but in some ways it reminded them of the incredible distance between the two. Some of you have been to sporting events and you've sat right down on the courts, right down on the floor, the front row, a couple rows back, and you say, wow, you're so close, you feel close to the action. But then you, you realize that the closer you get, the more you realize how far you are from ever being someone who could step out on that court. Because you see how fast the game is played. You see how big the athletes are, how strong and how athletic they are. You get closer, but in getting closer, you realize how far away you are from ever doing, from ever being like one of those. In so many ways, the tabernacle brought God's people close, his presence with his chosen people. But in so many ways, it reminded them of the great distance between them and God. And in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And it's as if God is saying, I came to you in the Old Testament of the pillar of fire and the cloud. You remember that directed the Israelites where to go, where to travel, that they followed it, that it was, that it was His presence when He was speaking to Moses. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, that His presence resided behind the veil. I came to you in a cloud. I came to you in a pillar. I came to you behind a veil. And now through Jesus in the flesh, right? The image, the representation, fully God that we could see. He lived with us, right? He grew up with us, went through puberty and middle school with us, got his first job, made uh, the mistakes that you make at a first job, learned a trade, grew up as part of a family, had siblings, and everything that comes with having siblings. He came and he dwelt with us. You know, we said last week that the target of God is all nations. As we think about making disciples, the target of God is all nations. The means of God is all true followers of Christ. And so it's the example 
of the Father sending the Son is the best example that we have of what does it look like to make disciples. Jesus leaving heaven, leaving the Father's side, and coming and dwelling, doing life with, actually being with us. He didn't just send Jesus to wave a magic wand and make everything better. He didn't just send Jesus with a message, and Jesus stood up with a megaphone and shouted out the message and said, you guys better repent. I've seen what it looks like. You want to do this. And then it goes back to heaven. Jesus comes and dwells with us. So we consider what it means to make disciples of all nations, this calling on all true followers of Christ's lives. We've got to ask ourselves, if Jesus came and dwelt with us, how are we intentionally going and dwelling with those far from Christ? This idea of dwelling has like a a tent pitching kind of idea. And some of you went on the church camp out a couple weeks ago. And maybe you went with a family that you knew, or maybe there was someone that you've got a great relationship with and you were really hoping to be next to them. And so you maybe took your tent, you took your truck, and you planted it right next to them. What evidence is there in our lives that we are taking our tents and pitching them in proximity of those that need to see Jesus? How do you work that into the weekly and daily rhythms of your life where you're intentionally going out of your way to cause your life to bump up against people who you're pretty sure are far from Jesus? Jesus came and dwelt among us. How do we go and dwell among those who are far from our Savior? Jesus gave up a lot to dwell with us. Position, side of the Father, we take the Lord's command seriously, it's going to cost us something. I might ask you to consider, how is following Jesus costing you something today? How is, Je- how is following Jesus costing you something today? Has it ever cost you something? The, Jesus didn't just enter the lives of the well-to-do. Uh, Jesus didn't just enter the lives of the families who might have looked like they had it all together. Right? Jesus went to the religious, Jesus went to the irreligious. Jesus went to the priests, Jesus went to the prostitutes. Jesus went to the Jews, Jesus went to the Samaritans. Jesus went to the very, very wealthy, and Jesus went to the very, very poor. It's costly, it's messy, but Jesus loved people more than he hated their mistakes. Jesus loved people more than he hated their sin. Jesus served tirelessly. He met physical needs over and over. We read of miracles where he was attentive to people. He sees their need, often reading he had compassion on them, and he provides food, he provides physical healing, right? He's attentive to their needs. And as he's attentive to the needs that they're aware of, their felt needs, he brings to their peripheral the awareness that there's a greater need, a spiritual need that he can also heal. We can't say that we love people and then ignore their needs, right? We can't say our hearts break for kids or for families or for any of the people groups that we've heard about over the last six weeks and ignore their needs. Now, it doesn't mean that we sign up for every single parachurch ministry happening in town and uh, go crazy, but it does mean that the Lord has a call on each of us, a place for each of us, a sphere of influence for each of us. We can't say that we love the Lord. We can't say that we love people and just ignore people's needs. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus 
his humility, the fact that he came from the Father but not, did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped and emptied himself of these things and set all this aside to do the Father's will because his whole life, his whole purpose, his whole mission is pointing people towards the Father. And so a question again for us this morning is how much of our energy, how much of our time, how much of our resources, how much of our life's work is about building our legacy building our legacy, not pointing people to our Father's love. How much of our life's work and our energy and our time and our resources and our daydreaming and our thoughts and the things that we strive for have to do with our legacy, not our Father's love. This idea uh, of an invitation of the Lord on our lives to be present, a moment-by-moment availability to the Lord and to our neighbors, this invitation to be present, at virtually every turn, you will have good reasons to say no. The Hess family had a lot of good reasons to say no. Where are these kids going to sleep? How are we going to afford them? We're already exhausted. We're already overwhelmed. We already feel like we've got nothing left to give. We can't give more. And when we say we can't give more, and the Lord kind of gently nudges us forward, we discover that he's got a lot more to give to us and to give through us. We think about being present and even just consider being present in our homes, marriage, being present in our homes uh, with our kids. There's a lot of distractions from having meaningful conversations, aren't there? There are a lot of things that preoccupy us at home that keep us from meaningful connecting and meaningful conversation. And as parents, in meaningful ways, shepherding the hearts and the souls of our kids and, and in our marriage, being attentive and thoughtful and engaging uh, with the hearts and with the souls of our spouses. It's amazing that that television, getting a snack, getting exercise, work in the garden uh, can get in the way of having a meaningful conversation with our spouse, meaningful conversation with our kids. There will be no shortage of distractions. It will be costly, it will be messy, but it will be worth it. As we continue on in verses 14 and 15, we see that by sending Jesus, the Father revealed his glory. So 14 says that he came and we saw his glory. Glory, the fullness of his glory is as of the only Son sent by or from the Father. In Jesus, we see Jesus' glory. In Jesus, we see the Father's glory. It's interesting, Exodus 33, Moses actually begs the Lord to show him his glory. He's getting ready to leave Mount Sinai with the people, and he's like, oh man, this is a huge job. Lord, don't send us if you're not going to go with us. Moses needed to be reminded of who was in charge. In verse, uh, let's see, in verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And in verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
Moses begs to see the Lord's glory and the Lord shows him his name, shows him his goodness. The sum of all of his goodness passes before Moses as the defining point as Moses prepares to lead the people towards the promised land. And the scene is almost like a child holding a lizard or some bug that they've caught in their hand and just giving you a little peek, right? That's what Moses got, a little peek. We get Jesus, way more than a little peek, right? Essentially the most well-documented life that has ever lived. Years of ministry, years of conversation, years of interaction with all sorts of people, years of the things that he said, years of the things that he did. We get so much more than a little peek when we look into the life of Jesus. Jesus said in John 12 that, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but believes in him who sent me. And whoever sees me has seen him who sent me. So as we look to Jesus, as we look at Jesus, as we listen to Jesus, we hear the Father, we see the Father, we see him do the things that the Father led him to do. As we look at the life of Jesus, we realize that we're pursued by a Father, even though on many occasions we've pushed him away. We see that our Father wants what's best for us, even though it comes at a great cost to him. We see that his goodness trumps our wickedness, because when God saves wretched people, the world sees his goodness. We see that he treats us according to his love, according to his holiness, not our worthiness of it. We see that he's patient. We see that he's good. We see that he's kind. We see that he's gentle even though so often we fail to be patient and to be kind and to be good and to be gentle. The Father takes ownership for us. The Father takes ownership for showing his glory to us. He sends Jesus. He says, we're going to do this ourselves. I'm going to do this myself. And Jesus comes. One of the reasons I think we have a hard time with God's glory is we often see ourselves as the offended, not the offender. We often see ourselves as the offended, not the offender. And we just have to understand that every time we say no to his purposes in favor of our plans, that we spit in his face. That every time we choose materialism over his kingdom, we move God to this advisory role in our life and say, I'll consult you when needed, but I'm going to do what I want. Some of you have adult children and estranged relationships with them, and, and you often mark some sort of progress or some sort of setback in the weekly prayer requests that come into the office. Uh, You'll often share those uh, with me and with others. And in so many cases, the relationship is less than you would like it to be. And in many cases as well, your adult son or daughter has no awareness uh, of the pain or the suffering uh, that they're causing. Most of us with the Lord identify as, as the parents, not that inconsiderate adult son or daughter. And we've got to see that every time we say no to his purposes, every time we say no to his plan in favor of our agenda, every time we belittle our sin, every time we minimize it, we belittle Jesus coming, we belittle the pain of the Father sending the Son, we belittle his sacrifice on the cross, we spit in his face. We've got to see that we're the offenders, not the offended. Finally, The revelation of who God is. Father sends the Son. The Son shows us His glory. The revelation of the glory of God leads to grace for us. 
The revelation of the glory of God leads to grace for us. Verses 16 through 18 of our passage today say this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. It's him who has made him known. Some of you are familiar with the sacrificial system. I mentioned the burnt offerings earlier. Right? The burnt offerings were temporary payments for their sin, temporary reprieves to come to the presence of God. But it was insufficient, right? Because the law pointed to Jesus. The law prepared us for Jesus. The law prepped our hearts to be responsive and receptive to the Messiah when the Messiah would come. Paul says this in Romans 7, 7 about the law. What then shall we say is the law sin or is it worthless or is it garbage or is it obsolete? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Paul says if I wouldn't have gone to the doctor and he wouldn't given me an accurate diagnosis, I wouldn't have known I was sick. If I, my teacher didn't give me a progress report card, I wouldn't know that I was failing the class. Paul says the law is of extraordinary value because it helped me to realize that I was missing Help me to realize that I was missing the mark. And just a few pages over in Romans, in chapter 8, it kind of brings it full circle. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, because nobody could keep the law. Everyone failed. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our basis of standing before the Father, our basis for hope in this life, our basis for confidence of what's waiting for us in the next, our basis for our purpose, our basis for our value, is that Jesus came and made a way that we could be right with God. It's not what we can do, it's what he's already done. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To know God is to know that he hates sin. To know God is to know that he can't be near sin. To know God is to know his glory, his worthiness, that he can't be in the presence of sin. But to know God is to know that grace has been extended. Right In the Old Testament, they have to do the sacrifice over and over, and they're reminded of their shortcomings, but they're reminded they have a God who forgives them, who keeps inviting them back to himself. As we consider that Jesus was sent for us, that he came and he dwelt among us, in one sense, it creates this incredible inferiority where we realize all that's been done for us and how undeserving we are of all that he has done. The revelation of the glory of God always leads to the awareness and the greater accessibility of grace as we understand that this was done for us. Jesus' efforts showed the glory of God. Church, as you think about what it means to be a bridge builder, uh, to neighbor well, to be a person who makes disciples of all nations, to run as light carrying light into the darkness. We've got to consider that the Christian community is not known for being a community that makes grace available, that is just hoarding generous amounts of grace and just giving it out freely. 
right? The Christian community has the reputation of keeping people far from God, of being hyper-religious and rules-oriented, of being fixated on people's paths, not what God can do with their future. And so as we're light carriers, torch bearers going into the darkness, we've got to realize that we can't take light into darkness if we resent the darkness. We can't take light into the darkness if we hate those trapped in darkness. We can't take light into darkness if we have no proximity with it, if we constantly run away from it. The idea of being present is this moment by moment availability to the Lord and to the neighbors that he has sent us to. It's a constant posture. It's not checking a box on a response card. It's not getting involved with some ministry. It's a moment by moment posture of our hearts. Lord, where are you moving and how can I get involved? As we wrap up this morning, I want to invite some families on stage uh, that for their unique season of life, saying yes to Jesus is meant taking a step that is uh, quite unusual in the sense that it's something that not many of us uh, are a part of. It involves opening up their homes to uh, children that are not biologically theirs. It involves all sorts of jumping through hoops. It's costly at times. It's inconvenient. It's frustrating. Um, But for these families, it's what they've been called to. And when you know it's something you've been called to, the rest is just, the rest are just details. So uh, Jeff and Mandy, can you join me on stage? And Brooke and Craig and Paul and Laura, are you in the house? Yes. All right, so these families are involved, uh, some with DHS, some not with DHS, but I just want to introduce them to you, have them share a little bit about where they're at in their journey, and then have them share with us how we can pray. And so by coming up here on stage, they have given you permission to follow up in the coming weeks and say, we're praying for you. To following up and say, is there any way that we can support you? On the end, we have Paul and Laura, and then this is Jeff and Mandy Young, and Brooke and Craig Jackson. And so I'll just start over here on my left with Brooke and Craig. Brooke and Craig, can you share what you're doing, why, and then how we can pray for you? Three and one. Thank you. So um, we just finished our first year. We're awaiting family in, with Christian Family Adoptions in their infant adoption program. Um, we just, after the first year, you have to go through all of the, um, the new home study and the background checks and that. So basically what we're doing now is just waiting for someone with 17 of their families to choose us to be their forever family. Why are you guys going down this path? Um, you have two so nice boys. Your family is great. They uh, met them. They seem very sweet. Why more? Um, it's always been kind of part of our, our plan to grow a family. We, we decided, we got married 11 years ago, and, and it's always been something we wanted to do. Um, my wife did some missionary work in Africa, and when she came back, it kind of reaffirmed our decision to share our family with someone and provide a home with someone. So um, it's been exciting. It's been um, frustrating. It's been learning experience, um, but it's been really good so far. How do we pray for you guys? For us, probably just patience um, throughout the process. Again, we, we're just starting our, our second year, so patience throughout the process. Um, pray that God's been with us, and, and pray with us as we kind of finish up the financial part of it as well. Okay. Thank you, guys. Jeff and Mandy, can you tell us uh, what you're doing, where you're at in the process? Um, so we have a little niece. She's almost two years old, and she lives in Tacoma, Washington. 
and she became a, well, she's in custody of the state up there, and we've been working with DHS and um, up there and down here uh, to try to get her uh, into our family. Um, she's one of four um, that have been, that we're pursuing. We're trying to adopt her, but the other three have gone to other family members, and they are together, and um, we just, that's what we're doing. <laughs> How do we pray for you guys? Um, it's been a, a long, we, we got back in this, started in this last November, and um, it's been long, it's been hard, a lot of lows and highs, more lows than highs, and it's been very frustrating at times and has really taken an emotional toll on both of us and our children at times too. And um, so just pray that we've taken this step and knowing that God's going to be faithful to us and that at one point she's going to be with us and she's going to be a part of our family. Um, and also patience as well because it's very hard to wait and what we thought was going to be um, maybe not a very long process has, in, has turned into one that um, could, could last for several more months. And what's her name? Her name is Emma. Emma. All right, Emma. Emma is two. Going to be two? Almost two. She'll Almost be two in two. October. Okay. Yeah. How do we specifically pray for you guys at this point in the journey? Well, I guess that we have patience and that we have comfort and peace in knowing that one day, because we've answered this call, she's going to be with us. And we feel like that that is the plan for us. Okay. So. Can you give the mic to Paul or Laura? Rochambeau. Um, uh, what are you guys doing and why? Okay. Um, last February, I lost a cousin of mine and his girlfriend. Uh, they both died and they left their four-year-old son. Uh, and he did become an, an orphan or a, a ward of the state. He did go to a different family member. Uh, originally, when he just went into an emergency foster care home, we had stepped in and tried to, you know, uh, to welcome him into our home, but he did go to a family member on the opposite side of the family. Uh, another family member who was closer to the family stepped in, and so we kind of took a, a large step back and just cheered him on and tried to be a support system. But in the past six months, things have gone from bad to worse, and it was just killing us and, like, really laying on our hearts, and we kept praying for an opportunity to step in or help with God needed, and we were doing everything we could from behind the scenes, and, and then it just became worse and worse. And um, it was literally the day after I put in the prayer request here at church, someone called and said, would you guys consider um, stepping in? And so, of course, we said, yes, this is the opportunity we've been waiting for. And so that was about one month ago. And since then, we had to get a lawyer, and things have been going, uh, you know, as easy as it could be. Uh, every time we've faced a problem, God has opened an opportunity to walk through and open the door. So... It's still underdogs for sure because there are other family members that that are closer to him on the opposite side of the family, but 
probably won't qualify to get him for safety reasons. So if God wants it to happen, he, he will make it happen. But um, being out of state, he is in California. That makes us a little bit less likely to get him. Um, but we have the complete support of our entire side of the family. And, you know, our odds are okay. Uh, we are just, every time that there's a situation, we just ask God to open a door. And it has, it has worked so far. We are confident God wants us in this whether it's to get him to be a part of our family or just to help him find the place that he's supposed to go, um, we're willing to do that. Okay. How do we pray for you guys? Um, I guess just that God, that we follow God's will in this, this whole thing. And um, I guess the bigger prayer is pray for him. Uh, his name's Dustin, and he needs, he needs a family <laughs> and one that will love him and hopefully bring him to God. Yeah. Yeah, Dustin, who's four, Emma, who's two, and we've got a question mark over here, and we'll see what that one is. Let's pray together. Uh, just ask the Lord's blessing on these families, uh, on the children uh, who have been mentioned, and just continued clarity about what does it mean to say yes and to be available to however the Lord leads, and then the worship team will lead us uh, in our closing song. Uh, pray with me, would you? Thank you, Lord, for the unique calling that you've put on these uh, families, Lord, and their responsiveness to that calling. Lord, we know that it's just not a, a yes or no kind of a thing. It's kind of a marathon, and Lord, they have uh, articulated that it's been longer than what they uh, expected, in some cases more emotional and more taxing than what was expected, more complicated than what was expected. And so, Lord, we would ask that if you're directing each of these families to continue down this road, that you will give them what they need today, you will give them what they need tomorrow and the day after that, Lord, and that uh, as many yeses as they're supposed to say, as many times, Lord, as you're going to come to them and, and give them a choice, Lord, would you give them faith to believe you, faith to believe, Lord, you're in control, faith to believe you love Dustin, and you love Emma, Lord, far more than they do. You want what's best for Dustin. You want what's best for Emma. You want what's best for these families and Lord, the kids that they have already that might be welcoming a brother or sister into their family. Lord, prepare them for all of that, Lord. And we just acknowledge that in so many ways we can't possibly be prepared for that. We can only cling to you. And so, Lord, uh, show us, show these families what it means to cling to you. May this church family be a useful part in that process. Lord, may we lift up uh, these families and these children's names, Lord, as together uh, as a body of believers as we want to say yes. We want to be present to whatever you've called us to do and to jump in with both feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.